Welcome to the Azra Rap Podcast, Episode 6. Does regional anesthesia affect outcomes after joint surgery? I'm your host, Raj Gupta, with my co-host, Eric Schwenk. Our guests today are Christopher Wu, Laura LaHaye, and Mark Newman. Hello and welcome to the ASRA Regional Anesthesia and Pain Podcast, ASRA Wrap. I'm your host, Raj Gupta. I'm an Associate Professor of Anesthesiology at Vanderbilt University. And uh, I have my co-host with me, Eric Schwenk, who's an Assistant Professor of Anesthesiology at Sydney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University in Pennsylvania. And um, we've got three wonderful guests with us today to talk about our topic today. First off is uh, Chris Wu. He's a professor of anesthesiology and critical care medicine at Johns Hopkins University. How are you, Chris? Good, good. Thanks for inviting me. And I've got Laura LaHaye, who's an assistant professor of anesthesiology and director of the acute pain service at Virginia Commonwealth University. Laura, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Mark Newman, who's an assistant professor of anesthesiology and critical care at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Mark, welcome. Thank you so much. So uh, our topic today um, is the uh, looking at the impact of regional anesthesia on outcomes after joint surgery, specifically knee and hip surgery. But before we get to our topic, I want to talk to you about a couple of little details, what's going on with the ASRA community. Uh, first off is the ASRA Fall Pain Meeting is November 17th through the 19th in San Diego. If you haven't registered and are interested in coming, go to ASRA.com for all the details about how to register for that meeting. It's often a very, very good meeting, well, very well attended, and San Diego can't beat that. And then um, second is in February 25th through the 26th, also in San Diego, is the Introduction to Perioperative Point of Care Ultrasound. It's a workshop. It's a very intense workshop with uh, material to read beforehand and also hands-on experience there. I will be attending that workshop, and I'd love to see you guys in person if you're able to make it. Um, I think it's going to be really cool. It's the first one that ASRA's done. And lastly, of course, is go to iTunes, go online to wherever your podcast reader is, and uh, review this podcast, rate it, uh, give a comment on it. That helps us out a lot, tells us a little bit about what you guys are thinking about this. And then tell your friends about it, because the more people that listen, the more useful this is for all of us. So getting back to the topic at hand, regional anesthesia and the impact of um, that on the outcomes of joint surgery. We've got four papers that we're going to be looking at today, and I'm just going to briefly run through the titles. Uh, the first one was a publication in Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine. It's called The Impact of Neuraxial Versus General Anesthesia on the Incidence of Postoperative Surgical Site Infections Following Knee or Hip Arthroplasty. And this is a meta-analysis. Chris Wu was part of that study. And then we have an editorial uh, that Laura LaHaye was part of called Does Anesthetic Technique Influence the Incidence of Surgical Site Infection in Total Joint Arthroplasty? Mark Newman has got two papers that we're going to reference today. The first was from uh, Anesthesiology in 2012 called Comparative Effectiveness of Regional versus General Anesthesia for Hip Fracture Surgery in Adults. And the Fourth paper is from JAMA in 2014, Anesthesia Technique, Mortality, and Length of Stay After Hip Fracture Surgery. Okay, so now that I've gotten through that entire mouthful, um, I want to get to you guys and start talking about some of these papers. I'm going to start with you, Chris. 
Um, the paper on surgical site infections, uh, it specifically talks about the difference between neuraxial anesthesia and um, general anesthesia for knee and hip arthroplasties. Uh, you guys did this as a big meta-analysis. Tell me a little bit about the meta-analysis and what you guys found from that paper. Yeah, so the idea of uh, this paper was to, to look, sort of summarize the data uh, comparing uh, regional versus neuroaxial versus general anesthesia and its effect on surgical site infection. And one of the reasons we looked at that is that the surgical site infections is a quality indicator that affects uh, payment uh, to the hospitals. So we realized there are several meta-analysis. Uh, we you know, followed uh, the, your, your typical guidelines in performing meta-analysis, extractive data, and ultimately looked at a, a few studies and uh, found that uh, without any adjustment, that neuroaxial anesthesia was associated with a lower, significantly lower rate for surgical site infection versus general anesthesia. But when we adjusted it, and obviously these are not randomized trials, these are observational trials, we adjusted for different um, factors, comorbidities, um, uh, things like antibiotic administration, uh, whether they were bilateral or unilateral. And, and we found that after adjustment that uh, there was a decrease um, in, in uh, surgical infections for knees, but not hips. And again, that's good discuss that. It's a little difficult to explain, but there, yeah, obviously there are several hypotheses or possibilities that that might be. And um, when you're looking at a big meta-analysis like this, um, you know, there's obviously limitations to studies of that type. Um, you know, people want to often um, conflate the results of a big paper like this where you've got hundreds of thousands of people in, in the studies that are evaluated. Um, and can you, uh, can you drive causation from this that says, you know, general anesthesia is worse and it's causing more infections for people having these surgeries or is that too harsh a statement? I think one of the problems with meta-analysis is that I think many people, depending on who you read it, technically it's the highest level of evidence, but realistically, I don't see how – it's more of a, an association. I can't say there's causality with a meta-analysis as opposed to a large randomized trial, uh, I think, that Mark's doing. So with a randomized trial, the design is – you know, if it's designed properly, you can determine causality, cause and effect relationship between an intervention like regional anesthesia and an outcome such as surgical site infection. But with a meta-analysis, particularly these are meta-analysis observational trials, I can always say, well – this suggests an association, but there's no causality. Yeah, this is Eric. Um, my question I have, do you think it's more, and it's, I guess it's just going to be kind of your opinion based on all that you've been doing, but would you say that it seems more likely that it's the absence of general anesthesia or it's the actual presence of the neuraxial technique that seems to be contributing to the decrease in surgical site infection? In other words, is it something inherent, you know, the, the vasodilatory properties perhaps or is it just uh, something associated with general that's a bad thing yeah that's a great question uh i'll be honest i'm not sure obviously there's several uh, you know proposals of why regional might neuroaxial and specifically may lead to decreased surgical site infection uh, you mentioned one of them the increase in vasodilatation lead to increased oxygen delivery to the surgical uh, site um the, another issue is that, that when you do general anesthesia, you have uh, a decrease in immune function perioperatively. And so something like a neuroaxial anesthetic 
uh, can completely suppress the stress response and preserve immune function. And so it's not clear what the, the, the reasons are for this. And, and one of the problems is, is that when you look at surgical site infections, everyone defines it differently, even though there are CDC guidelines that, that say this is a definition for a surgical site infection. So there's a lot of issues in, in sort of combining the, these studies. So, Mark, I want to jump over to you for a second. So your studies were looking not at surgical site infections, but at mortality, length of stay, those kinds of issues. Obviously, these are related uh, infections can uh, contribute to those uh, complications. Um, but you're doing your studies a little differently. Um, I noticed that uh, you're looking at regional differences in New York State with one of your papers looking at proximity to hospitals that tend to do more regional anesthetic the other people actually looked at patients who did receive regional anesthetic, and you found different results with those two studies. Can you talk a little bit about um, mortality differences with regional versus general, and if you think that between the two papers you have any kind of conclusive thoughts on that? Yeah, well, um, I appreciate the chance to talk about these here. It's a great uh, podcast. I'm excited to be part of it. And, you know, the, um, those two papers, you know, there, there's a sort of a story and, um, you know, what it really is, is the progression of kind of, uh, thinking. So when we wrote that first paper, which was in anesthesiology, I think in 2010 or 12, um, it was what, what would be considered to be a fairly typical retrospective analysis, which is this new uh, logistic regression techniques, which is a statistical technique to adjust for potential confounding variables, so things that might influence the outcome between people who get spinal versus general anesthesia for hip fractures. Um, and that did show a, a suggestive association between spinal anesthesia and mortality. It also showed a potential association between spinal anesthesia and pulmonary complications, so potentially infectious complications. Um, we redid the study using better data, but we used that technique that you mentioned from New York State using regional differences, and this is something called instrumental variable analysis. It's basically a way of simulating a randomized trial within a retrospective database. And, and just to be kind of concise about it, what it does is, is it, 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 it works on the assumption that certain hospitals practice certain ways. If you get a hip fracture near a certain type of hospital, you'll be likely to go to that hospital for treatment. And if that hospital is the place that uses a lot of regional, you'll probably get regional anesthesia. So it's a form, it's a type of kind of quasi-randomized design. Um, but it's still not a randomized trial. Um, so it still leaves room open for, for something more definitive like what we're doing now. The results of the JAMA study, which used that technique, instrumental variable analysis, um, it suggested there was a shorter length of stay for people who got spinal anesthesia versus general of hip fractures. Um, and it showed a potential difference in terms of mortality in that spinal was uh, associated with a, uh, a lower risk mortality, but it didn't meet statistical significance. So a study that's compatible with a story about spinal being better for you, but again, not something that, that would suggest any definitive association. So based on those two things, you know, our feeling is really that there's not sufficient evidence here to make a call either way and that there's a need for definitive randomized evidence. And so that's the study we're working on now, which is a large-scale randomized trial of spinal versus general anesthesia for hip fracture. 
it's called the Regain Study, and um, and we're it's right, it's it's what we're working on right now. Mark, uh, this is Eric again. I, I just have a question as it relates to uh, just kind of like a little bit of a bigger question between uh, spinal versus general anesthesia. I mean, maybe it's um, an obvious question, maybe not. But uh, what do you think? Why would just inherently, uh, intuitively, why would spinal anesthesia necessarily have a, a lasting impact on uh, on on a downstream event like the ability to walk a couple months later, a long term outcome like that? What is there to suggest? Is it what factors do you think might be uh, the biggest ones that would be related to that? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And just to to back up, you know, just to, Eric Eric has some uh, you know some inside information, but this hospital is 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 hopefully going to be one of those that's participating in our study. So he's seen our protocol and um, knows that our our endpoint for our trial is recovery of locomotion at sixty days. So our endpoint um, is whether or not you can walk independently after your fracture two months later. Um, just to mention, hip fracture and elective hip replacement are really totally different entities, and recovery of locomotion is a really big deal for hip fracture patients. It's a big deal for electives, too, but you know, for, for hip fracture patients, they really are at risk of, of having serious functional impairment afterwards. The reason I think spinal anesthesia versus general anesthesia could affect these outcomes is that these could be downstream events that come after things that happen in the hospital. So if you're hospitalized and you have pneumonia or you have an MI or you have delirium, um, things like that, the, the long-term lasting effects of these things could translate into functional impairment. And when we thought through this study as we were putting it together, what was really critical to us was that the study be about things that are important to patients. And when we talked to patients over and over, they told us, what's important to me after hip fracture is that I can walk again. So from our standpoint, we consider that the bar that anesthesia interventions be held to is the same patient-centered outcome bar than any health outcome, um, any health intervention should be associated with, which is, you know, are you able to, to, to achieve those outcomes that are important to you? So from our standpoint, that's how we pick uh, recovery of walking as our primary outcome. So, Laura, with these um, two studies groupings where you're looking at mortality in one and surgical site infections in the other, you know, I I mean, mortality is kind of a big deal. You can kind of figure out people don't want to die. And then obviously the the REGAIN study is looking at locomotion, which is getting people back to function. Uh, Help people understand why surgical site infections are so important um, in this context of morbidity and mortality. Uh, yeah, so I think they're, it's sort of multifactorial. Um, one, Chris mentioned early on the cost. Um, so reoperation is important. The cost of uh, unplanned readmission to the hospital, uh, extended length of stay. So certainly cost. And then, you know, you mentioned um, immobility, um, exposure to additional treatments, additional surgery, antibiotic therapy, those sorts of things. So I think, I think there are multiple factors coming into play there. And, and what do you mean by cost? Is it is it just the cost of care, or so the cost of care? Certainly, the cost of patients who were previously mobile who now need to go to an extended care facility postoperatively, for instance, and then sort of getting into the new milieu of reimbursement um, from our payers and talking about bundled care and value, um, and and certainly all of that comes into play as well. I have a kind of uh, this is Eric again. I have a kind of a general question, maybe for. Uh for all of you, but, but um, just looking at comparing general anesthesia to, uh, I guess, more so for uh, for Laura and Chris, because uh, hip fractures are not really elective surgery, but for the elective joint surgery, I mean, 
different centers tend to have preferences either for regional or uh, general. And at least where I am, it tends to be the kind of thing where patients are told that general is better for them by the surgeon and they're going to, or sorry, they're going to get regional because regional is better for the patient and general is made out to be kind of the enemy. And I think getting a randomized controlled trial at, at a single center for elective things like that would be very difficult because you kind of have to break uh, practice patterns. So is there really, do you think it's possible that we'll ever be able to get uh, a randomized controlled trial for some of these uh, elective things that involves uh, a single center? For, I think, randomized trials for regional, I mean, I've clawed Mark's uh, efforts on that. It is in- incredibly difficult and expensive. Uh, and it, again, there's also issues with um, randomized trials and extrapolating. I think for the neuroaxial or regional versus general question, I'm not sure if I'll address uh, your, your, the issues you've raised, but when you protocolize something so tightly, the protocol itself can affect outcome. So sometimes, and again, uh, if the protocol is so tight that you, let's say, you control heart rate within 10 15%, that itself can affect outcome. So you might, even if you found no difference between a regional versus general trial, the still question remains whether it was the protocol itself or actually there was no difference. That's one example of how difficult a randomized trial for this particular topic could be. And the numbers uh, are, depending on what your outcome is, can be quite large, uh, the sample size required. Right. I'll just, uh, this is Mark, you know, I um, I absolutely agree with Chris that there are huge complexities involved. And, you know, Regain is um, so far working out great. Um, You know, we're recruiting well, and it's been a great experience. Um, but there have been a lot of challenges, a lot of practical things to think through. The strictness of the protocol, you know, in terms of what we're requesting people to do, we had to spend a lot of time thinking about. And people have raised issues about, you know, should your protocol, you know, be defined in a more strict way or in a looser way. These are all design trade-offs. And I think the thing to remember is that no one trial is going to be perfect. Um, but on the other hand, uh, what I think is really important to emphasize is that even an imperfect trial is going to teach you a huge amount um, about what what is really involved in these treatments. We've learned already so much about how people practice by just going out and starting this effort. And and the other piece is, to your point, Eric, um, you know, there was a fair bit of talk about how trials in hip fracture, randomized trials would just be impossible to pull off. Um, you know, conversations that I had with people as I was planning and writing this. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I think that, that we underestimate or we talk ourselves out of um, doing, amb- underestimate what's possible. I think that being ambitious in how we design studies is, is a worthwhile thing. And, and I think that, you know, there would be practical challenges in doing a randomized trial of elective joints that, that, that we haven't run into for a game. But would I say it's impossible? No. I think it's something that's totally doable if people decide that they want to come together and do it. The only question is, you know, how bad do we want that kind of evidence? And and I think that that if there's if there's a will to do it, it's something that's totally, totally doable. It might take time and money, but but it's certainly doable. So that that, that, that kind of gets to a, a harder question I have, which is, um, do we stop at meta-analysis? So Chris kind of implied that, 
you know, that's a higher level of, uh, uh, of analysis of multiple studies. Or do we, do we need to get the randomized control trial every time to start changing our practice? Um, I mean, is it enough that, uh, you know, the study that came out of Hopkins showed us that, you know, neuraxial anesthesia can reduce infections? Or do we need, uh, even though your study in uh, New York showed that maybe it doesn't help with mortality, or are we waiting on the regain trial to start changing practice? I mean, when do we um, jump in and start actually affecting how we care for patients and how we uh, educate patients? So, Chris, I'll throw that to you first. And then Laura, I'd love for, to hear your comment as well. Well, first of all, I need to, we need to compliment Mark. What he's done is really uh, incredible to uh, a current amount of work uh, to do the, the, such a large randomized trial. I think one of the questions uh, when it comes down to, you know, it's almost like, I'm not sure if I read your question correctly, Raj, but it's a meta-analysis versus randomized controlled trials. I don't see it as one or the other. I see them as complementary. And it's like anything else. There's good and bad for each type of study design. And so ultimately, I, you know, ideally that you'll have several randomized trials and then perform that are well done. And then you perform a meta-analysis and get a very tight uh, pooled estimate from those trials or meta-analysis. So typically that's the ideal, but I don't, I, I typically don't like to say it's one or the other. It's again, it's all, all types of studies and data can give you uh, evidence and it's how you interpret that and, and how it's written. Uh, so again, not exactly answer your question, right? But again, I just want to emphasize that it's not one or the other; that they're really complementary. Well, Laura, I'll ask you this question: So, are, do you have enough to be a believer? Are you gonna <laughs> Are you gonna convince your patients that yeah, this is definitely the better way, or do you go at it softly or with more conviction? I mean, I, you know, that's a question we have to face with every patient. We do, and we get asked that regularly. You know, the family members will be sitting by the bedside and will say, you know. Well, Doc, if this was up to you, what would you choose? And it's a diff- it's a very difficult question. It's a good question, and it's sort of at the heart of all of this to some degree, I think. Um, and and you know, we actually happen to have a group of surgeons in our practice that is heavily in favor of neuraxial techniques, um, uh, as Eric was saying, um, can sometimes be the case. And so, typically, there's been a preoperative conversation that's already taken place before I meet the patient, in which the idea of an axial anesthetic has been introduced and touted. Um, and so, to some degree, some of that decision making has already been done. And for folks who come in and are happy with that plan, I think that that's a very reasonable way to go. However, those patients that come in and are looking for a little more education and asking if we think it really makes a difference, you know, I, I go back and forth a little bit. And, and I think we've mentioned this idea of needing to tailor the anesthetic in the future to, to specific patients. Um, and, and ultimately, I think that that's what it comes down to. So the answer might, might be that it's different based, based on a, you know, an individual patient. One of the one of the questions I have is we've been talking about neuraxial anesthesia. Um, how do we start extrapolating to other types of regional anesthesia, particularly for, uh, you know, there's a lot of conversation about the best anesthetic for a knee arthroplasty, the best anesthetic for a hip arthroplasty. You know, how, how uh, specific can you get with your regional anesthetics, um, you know, moving from neuraxial to femoral to adductor canal blocks, um, you know, uh, 
uh, new an- uh, new local anesthetics. I know we're not discussing that in the literature that we're looking at today, but I just want to get an opinion. I mean, is this translatable research? Is it the something special about neuraxial anesthesia, like you said, the vasodilation and potential increased uh, oxygen at the tissue that helps reduce these things, or is there something about avoiding general anesthesia, which is the more powerful uh, impact in this? Well, this is Mark, and, and I'll, 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 I'd like to respond to that as well as, to some extent, the last question, which is that, you know, I think you have to be careful in generalizing any study outside of its proper context. Uh, you know, even well-designed randomized trials, you know, it's challenging to figure out exactly who they apply to. But the concept here is that getting better data, and, and by better, I'm not just talking about things that are randomized versus non-randomized. It's, it's looking for clinical data or data on outcomes that are meaningful to patients. You get more and more precise definitions of what you're actually talking about. And this helps to get closer to understanding mechanisms, like you mentioned, things like tissue perfusion and tissue oxygenation. And by actually studying these things in depth, in detailed ways, we, we can start to get better senses of what the mechanisms are by which interventions are, are possibly working. And that's another reason to, to look for better and better study designs to, to approach here. You know, I think ultimately what a lot of this comes down to is how how good, how reliable, and, and actually how, how quantitative is the information we can give our patients. You know, what we'd ideally like to say is to be able to go up to somebody and say, by getting this anesthesia technique, you've reduced your chance of this outcome by X percent. That's the level of information that we need to start making better decisions and better choices on a large scale. And, you know, these are the kinds of things that, that, that really require well-designed studies to do. Um, so I would say, you know, some of these studies, including, you know, trials that are in different areas or, or observational sites, can help us to develop some ideas about what might work. But to understand what does work and, and how well things work, we need well-designed studies in anesthesia to do it. So I guess uh, we're kind of getting near the uh, near the end of the podcast here. Uh, just throw out one more thing. If, um, if you, when you guys talk to your patients that are about to undergo a total joint arthroplasty, how, how confidently do you recommend uh, one technique or another, given the fact that there's uh, minimal randomized controlled data to speak from, but in the case of uh, elective, joint, uh, elective joint procedures and actually, I guess, hip fractures as well, there's a, a, good, a good body of uh, retrospective literature. How, you know, how do you go about kind of phrasing that and balancing the, fa- the fact that you know there's no uh, proven causation yet, but there may be a, a lot of uh, retrospective data to lean on? Uh, Chris, you want to say a quick word about that? Yeah, I think I think Laura is correct in that, you, and, and sort of combining what Laura and uh, Eric uh, 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 Mark have said is that you know it's you're taking data, trying to individualize it to your patient and your patient, uh, and sometimes the, the the data from the randomized trial doesn't does exactly fit your patient. And when you look at an analysis, it's a bunch of groups of different patients or different ages. So you really have to look at their their the individual patient, uh, their comorbidities, and then obviously their personal preferences. Uh, so if you just take, you know, let's say epidural anesthesia allergies in, in general, there is probably of greater benefit in higher risk patients or those uh, undergoing higher risk surgery or those who have decreased physiological reserves. That's what the general uh, data suggests. 
But again, it also depends on if the personnel is comfortable putting epidural. How what do you have a good pain service? Things like that. No, I was just going to. I was going to second what what Chris said, and I think that that was pointed out in in one of these manuscripts. You know, in terms of the institution institutional comfort with the placement of the technique, certainly patient preference. You know, getting patient buy in is is incredibly important. And so, yeah, I would just second what Chris said. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I'm in I'm in line with 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 both Chris and Laura. You know that that at this point, you know, what I typically say is that you know we're studying these things. Um, We only know so much. you know, we, we discuss preferences typically. Uh, oftentimes I'll discuss the retrospective evidence with as much, you know, articulation of, uh, you know, limitations that I can. Um, uh, and, and, and really stress that, you know, you know, to a large extent, um, you know, preferences is, is, uh, is what we're leaning on. Um, you know, and it also gets to this point, which is that, you know, whatever we find in research is not going to dictate necessarily what's best for an individual patient. It'll only give us better information to advise. Uh, and that's really my, my, my belief on this. We'll only get more and more precise estimates of what these things can actually be expected to do. But for any individual, it's, it's an open question about what's going to happen when they get a particular technique or other. So I think that kind of sort of humility is an important thing to, to keep in mind when interpreting any of this research. Yeah, I'll throw a sentence in there too, is that I feel like um, I kind of turn the volume up on the data as necessary. So often we start with sort of our standard protocols and practices with the patient. And if there's no opposition to it, we move forward. But if there's questions, concerns, hesitation, then we will increase the amount of detail about options, alternatives, and then get into the data and analysis as necessary so that if the patient seems to be indicating that they want to be a more active participant in that decision-making, then we'll often, I will often allow them to be. Um, I, I find that I only force my hand or force their hand when I feel strong enough to say that, okay, you are so off the normal curve that these risks actually do increase one way or the other significantly. So, you know, you've got somebody who's got um, major airway issues or other cardiovascular risks that a general anesthesia increases the risk outside the norm of whatever studies that we're referring to, then then you have to kind of expand that risk-benefit discussion to include those uh, unique elements for that patient. Um, and so that's how I kind of use this data when I look at these papers and stuff is I only bring them in when the patient seems to be interested. I find a lot of patients are just hoping that we've analyzed all that stuff beforehand and are giving them their best opinion from the first shot and not, uh, not looking for all that nuance. That may be regional differences too. I don't know if that, you know, different parts of the country approach, patients approach that uh, decision-making differently as well. That'd be interesting to hear as well. Great. I agree. You guys raise really good points and uh, it all comes down to, you know, putting everything together in front of the uh, individual patient that's in front of you. Well, I want to thank um, uh, Eric, of course, uh, co-hosting the show um, and Chris Wu, Laura LaHaye and Mark Newman for being our guests today. I think these are really important topics. Um, We're going to keep coming back to you next month with another topic. October, we'll have another show for you. 
Um, like I said at the beginning of the show, please tell your friends, um, share it with other people, let other people know that we're having these conversations. I think it's a great way to keep in touch with the Azra community and the members that are active in creating new knowledge for Azra and the uh, practitioners that do regional anesthesia and pain medicine. Um, uh, and we will see you next time. Thank you guys for participating. Thanks. Thanks so much. All right, bye. See you guys. Okay, thanks. Thank you, guys. Thank you. See you, Azra.